What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Lopriori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. I'm joined by someone who actually meant something to me before we even had this conversation. He's a documentarian. He's spoken all over the world. He is a survivor. I could have this intro going for like 55 minutes on all the things (laughs) that uh, Kevin has been, but I'm joined by just the amazing Kevin Hines. Kevin, how are you doing, sir? One of the best intros I've ever heard. Thank you, sir. (laughs) How are you? God, I'm doing good. Good, See, good. You know, today is a great mental health day. Yesterday was not. I was struggling mentally yesterday. See, uh, that was one of the questions too that I that that I want to get that I definitely want to get to. Are you feeling a little better today? I feel good today. I, I slept well, went to bed early, and was like, I'm gonna tackle today and I'm gonna make it a winning day. But yesterday I had a really rough time. But it happens like that, you know, when you have bipolar disorder like I do, like my birth parents had before me, you go up. And once you go up, you must come down. So you come down. And so uh, yesterday was a down day, but I'm back and feeling good today. So thank you. Good brother. I'm 33 now. When I was 28, going into my 29th birthday, I was actually diagnosed uh, with bipolar as well, uh, bipolar two. So I definitely know what it's like to have some bad days for sure. But I wanted to get so Personally, when I was going through my journey, your documentary, uh, The Ripple Effect, was uh, recommended to me by a friend. So I actually saw your documentary uh, like two years ago. And uh, for me, just to give you a short cliff notes on me, I had a, a very serious nervous breakdown. I was going to take my life. You know, I've, I've told the story. I'm very transparent about it. I was going to wait until... Uh, my partner at the time uh, was going to go to work. I was going to put my dog in my crate. I wrote a note. I lived on the 11th floor. I was going to jump off of my terrace, but something, this internal voice kind of told me like, hey, listen, let's try, you know, possibly just going inpatient and maybe talking to some professionals about what you were going to. And leading up to that, I wasn't talking to any professionals. I wasn't taking any medications. I just was feeling that uh, all the, uh, the manic episodes, but then also what I had was just very severe lows. I was just at a very severe low point in my life. So when I was in the hospital, I got out. They were I was there for seventy two hours. Then I got out, and then um, I was told about uh, the ripple effect because something that we spoke about was how suicide affects so many people that are close to you, and how it's one of those things where that. I said in my mind, I said, you know, I, I won't have to feel like this anymore. I won't have to feel this drastic low that I was in, uh, this somewhat numbness, but also this agoraphobic lifestyle that I was, uh, you know, living in at the moment. I was afraid of everything at this point in my life. I felt like everything was uh, kind of a threat to me, whether it be family members, like inanimate objects, you know, I, I just was constantly thinking about 
ending my own life at that time, I got to see your documentary. And when I got to see it, man, it really fucking knocks you on your ass. So I want you to explain it because it's your journey. I just want you to know that your documentary played a, a, a big part in my life. So I just want you to know that your journey has added to mine in a very personal way. So when I saw that you were going to be on the show, I was very excited because when I saw your documentary, the first thing I said is, I just want to fucking hug this fucking guy. <laughs> so uh, if I do ever get to meet you in person, I'm going to hug the fucking shit out of you. That's a deal. But yes, if you guys can find a way to watch Suicide, The Ripple Effect by Kevin Hines, highly, highly recommend it. I was looking at your website earlier. You guys are actually going to do like a, a watch party, right? Yeah, we do free screenings once a month, but then you can get the film for a 24-hour rental on Vimeo On Demand anytime. There it is. That's available. But I think we're doing our next uh, screening April 14th. Yeah. Man, I just need to say thank you. So I really do. Oh, brother. That means the world. That means the world. This is fucking awesome. I'm not very like speechless a lot of the times, but when I saw your name come up with my producer, Sam, I said, where the fuck do I know that fucking name from? And I said, holy shit. Oh my God. This guy's story is fucking wild. Can you talk to me about like a couple hours, maybe even like 24 hours before you went to the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. Let's look at that. 24 hours before I went to leap off the Golden Gate Bridge to try to take my life. I was in such a devastating place of complete despair. It was worse than depression. It was a darkness. And it was a place where I came to believe that all of my family, all of my friends hated me and wanted me gone. Of course, none of that was true, but I believed it. My brain told me that. And what is your brain if not the single most powerful organ you wield? I sat in my room and I wrote that note that, frankly, only 22% of civilians actually write who die by suicide. Most people don't leave a note. Yep. I wrote that note and I was in such desperate pain and I believed I was useless. I believed I was worthless, but I was wrong, Danny. I just couldn't see it. Another reason why your documentary was uh, recommended to me too is uh, a friend of mine took his own life on the George Washington Bridge uh, New Year's Eve about six years ago. Uh, my friend, Michael Engelson, he took his life there. So for me, just in my own personal experience, what I was going through in my mind, you know, everybody is a little bit different, but the results can be the same, sadly, where people end up taking their lives, right? When you got there, did you drive there? Did you walk there? I took a bus. You took a bus. So you left your house. Yeah. You go and take this public bus. Yeah. Are you having an internal dialogue at that time? Are you talking to, are you talking to anybody on the bus? No, I wasn't talking to anybody on the bus. I was talking to myself. Well, I was talking to myself out loud on the bus. That's what I'm saying. I was yelling aloud at the voices I was hearing in my head. Oh. I'll, never forget, I'll never forget it. I'm on the bus sitting in the very back row in the middle seat. So if you're on the bus, the only way to look at is at me. I'm yelling, leave me alone. But I don't want to die. Why do you hate me so much? What did I ever do to you? But everybody on the bus is like this crazy guy. Yeah. And literally the guy to my left says to the fellow next to him while kind of pointing me with his thumb, smiling and laughing. What the hell's wrong with that kid? As opposed to asking me if I need help. 
that's where I have this disconnect with the rest of society. Let me be clear. Not all of us. Right, right, right. People that care about those mental struggles and people that look emotionally unwell and they'll take action. But there are more people than that who do not and won't. Yeah, it can't be bothered, really. People are worried. Are they dangerous? Is Are they going to threaten me? Should I put myself in that situation? I don't have the time. You know, all that crap. Do you still feel that way now? I feel like more than ever, we're talking about mental health, but more than ever, we're having the wrong conversation. Oh, wow. We're talking about it more than ever before. For sure. Organizations are pushing awareness more than ever before, but solution-based efforts are lacking. Because if they weren't lacking, people wouldn't be dying as a, at a rate they are today. Right. Especially men. Especially men. More females are attempting than ever before. Uh, more five to nine-year-old black children are dying by suicide than ever before in the history of America. And that is terrifying. Uh, more four to 10-year-old children. Children. How does a four-year-old not take their life? That's unbelievable. Are dying by suicide than ever before. This is something... We need to wrap our heads around now, not yesterday, not tomorrow, now. And one of the things that bothers me is the suicide prevention community is so siloed. We all work in our own little silos. And when someone gets funding, the other one goes, I hate you, as opposed to you have the funding. I'm going to bolster you up. What can I do to help you and your cause? We're all competing with each other for pots of money that are negligent and, and non-existent. And instead of competing, we should be collaborating and finding ways to actually save more lives. I agree with you. And before we get back into your story, I know that uh, one of your biggest fights really is to basically make the Golden Gate Bridge. I know they're working on the net now, like they're saying that it's, it's nearing completion. And the thing that I saw from one of your interviews is, is that one of the main arguments is it would not be aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? You know, it's not aesthetically pleasing. Watching somebody leap to their death. Die right in front of you. Yeah. yeah. Not very pleasing. Aesthetically. Yeah. My God. I said this in my film. I said, what are the aesthetics of a bridge compared to one human life? Yep. And if one human life that dies by suicide affects at the very least 115 people, the secondary effect and the tertiary effect are incalculable. The number of people that are affected by one suicide is incalculable for all the people that have touched that life, for all the people that find out someday that person died, for all the people that are born into that family that didn't know the person that passed away, but then learns that their uncle or aunt or grandpa or grandma died, and that's how they died. It affects you over generations. For sure. And it's one of those things, too, where like, uh, I mean, the ripple effect is the perfect name for your documentary, especially in conversation about suicide. And for me, that kind of was the driving force and why I didn't pursue uh, killing myself, you know, uh, committing suicide is because you see what happens to people off of natural death. Yeah. The grief. Grief is immeasurable. When you love someone unconditionally and they pass away, that grief is with you forever. In America, we love to sit there and go, oh, snap out of it, get over it, move on. You know, it's been two years, Danny. Yeah. When someone dies by suicide that we love, it is a kind of pain that you can never shake off. I have lost. No, you never forget it. 
No, I've lost 12 people this way. I've lost 12 people to suicide that I care about. I think about them each every day. And I take time to pray for them every day. They didn't die because of me or in spite of me. They died because a lethal emotional pain that had nothing to do with me. I accept that. I don't hold guilt for what they did, but I am brokenhearted about it. But here's the thing. I don't believe any of us can move on from a suicide. I think that's impossible. I, I think it is too. I think we can look to the living, look to the living and say, how do we find a way to move forward? Not on, that's impossible, forward. How do we keep going? How about all the families that have a death in the family by suicide and then another one and then another one and then another one in different generations of the family because of that one option that has been let out of the bag, you know? Yeah. Come an option in the family and then somebody else thinks about it, then they attempt or they die. It's just, it's a cycle that just repeats itself. And we really need to focus on what matters here. We need to have the conversation about suicide at the breakfast, lunch, and dinner table. We do in our homes. We need to look at our kids who are in high school, who are thinking of suicide more than ever before in the history of the universe and say, are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life? And do you have the means? That doesn't put the thought in their mind if it's not already there, gives them permission to speak on their pain, a pain shared becomes a pain halved, and they stay alive. It's a very difficult conversation, people think. And I'm sure it is. Only because we make it that. That's what I was going to say. Only because we preface it with like, oh, you can't talk about that, the word suicide. That's yeah. why That's why when you, actually, this is fascinating. The crisis text line's new algorithm, a recent algorithm, which is fantastic and very powerful, has figured out through a keyword search that asking the question, are you thinking of killing yourself? gets a more honest answer than are you thinking of suicide or are you thinking of self-harm? Because suicide has a taboo on the word and self-harm is by definition, not suicide, it's self-harm. So when you ask the question, are you thinking of killing yourself? You get a more truthful and honest answer than are you thinking of suicide, which is important because language matters. That's why we say, For sure. that's why a lot of us in the suicide prevention community say die by suicide, just like you would die of any other organ disease as opposed to commit, which sounds like they're committing a crime. Right. Which is something people learn over time and you decide on your own whether you want to say the one or the other. But I feel more comfortable saying that I attempted to die by suicide rather than commit because I wasn't committing a crime. I'm not a bad person. I wasn't committing a, a terrible act. I was in pain. And it makes you feel shameful when you say it more that way. What is the one thing, Danny, you want to happen when you're in excruciating physical pain? What do you want that pain to do? Go away. Go away. That's physical pain, Danny. Brain pain, 300,000 times worse. Now, I want you to compare what your education was in terms of death by suicide. While you're on that bus, did you know anyone yet in your life that has taken their own life? One person. So from one to 12 in 21 years. So the exact opposite number. So my high school theater director, Mr. Fennell, Mr. John Fennell, yes. in the stories in the film, John Fennell, this guy was my hero. He was my mentor. He was my friend. He was like a second father figure. And he was a troubled primary alcoholic. And seven months before my attempt, he took his life. Now, I'll never forget when my dad was driving me to his funeral. I'm crying my eyes out. I'm beside myself. My dad turned to me and said, Kevin, 
you can never do anything like this. You would never do anything like this, right? You have an obligation to your family to be here. We love you. And I, at the time, I said, Dad, I would never do that. I'm not even thinking about that. Not, not going to happen. Not even in the realm of possibility. I would never want to hurt you like that. And he asked me to remember that. But Danny, I forgot it. When I was on that bus that day, all I could see, feel, hear, touch, and know was pain. And it was unrelenting. And I was hearing voices in my head, auditory hallucinations saying I had to die, screaming that I had to die, that I had no choice. I never wanted to die by suicide that day. I believed I had to. Two categorically different things. I can't imagine just the torture that you're going through on a daily basis at leading up to that. You lose a mentor, like you said, in your own words, like a second father. How much of that possibly contributed to you getting on the bus that day? I don't know about getting on the bus that day, but when I got to the bridge, and this is a story I rarely tell, when I got to the bridge and I, I picked the spot, I remember looking at the rail of the bridge and someone had carved in it, jump, jump and then do it, something like that. I thought to myself, I'm going to go down and die. And I'm going to go into the pits of hell and I'm going to pull out John Fennell. I'm going to bring him to heaven, like in the film, What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams. Yes. That was on my mind. That crossed my mind. And that's when the woman from my left approached me and asked me to take her picture several times. And I hear you talking about that. Uh, the woman approaches you to take a picture and she's associating this bridge you know, like amazing moment in her life. Like she made it to the Golden Gate Bridge. This glorious beauty, this Art Deco masterpiece, but it's not safe. But it's not safe. And right. at this point, do you get knocked off, like obviously of your train of thought? Or are you even like hearing this woman while you're taking the pictures of her? I mean, I just remember her pointing her camera at me and she said, will you take my picture? But I couldn't hear much of it. I just saw, you know, the woman with the camera in my face, like, oh, obviously she wants her picture taken. And I took her picture several times and she walked away. But that's not her fault. I left the fate of my life in her hands. I wanted her to say, are you OK? And she didn't. And that's not her fault because she couldn't see my pain. And you talk a lot about how and I'm a firm fucking believer in this that asking somebody if they're okay or if they need anything taking some time out of your day to ask somebody how they are can make a tremendous difference on someone if you're willing to listen to the full and real answer yes if you're not just passing by hey how are you all right see you yeah it's looking someone in the eye calling someone and say hey listen are you okay yeah and then the floor is theirs after could honestly make a difference in, in saving somebody's life. And uh, I think, thank God you're living proof of that now. You know, Danny, here's a story I don't tell often, but I've gotten permission to tell it. My sister, now we're all adopted, me and my brother, my sister, different families in one family with a Hyde's family now and have been for as long as I can remember now. But my sister went off on her own years ago and became this kind of wandering nomad. She was homeless for six months of her life. She really struggled. And she ended up in front of a Walmart giving away her two pets. And she was broken and she was suicidal and she was alone. And she just started sobbing in the parking lot of Walmart. And a woman named Linda and a woman named Kim approached her and said, hey, are you okay? Can I help you? Two of the three sentences I needed said to me, when I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. 
And those two individuals, Linda and Kim, saved my sister's life. Unbelievable. She lives with them today. They've turned her life completely around. Wow. My sister went from being homeless with two pets she was giving away to now having more pets than she knows what to do with, <laughs> to running a karate dojo successfully. Look at her go. And she's killing it. And she's alive and well to talk about this story. And it comes from human kindness. It comes from human kindness. It's unbelievable. And she taught me a lot of stuff because like, here I was needing that, are you okay? Why wasn't I the one to give that to my sister? You know, I was out of touch with her for so long. It was both of our doings, but here we are. And I've learned my lesson. When I see someone or hear about someone actively emotionally struggling, I'm going to dig. Oh, yeah. Find out what they need and how I can help them. I almost feel bad too. Like before I had my situation, that wasn't as clear to me. Yeah. If I'm speaking honestly, to to make that effort to check in on people. It's sad as human beings that sometimes we have to go through horrible shit to to get there. And I think that what you're doing is uh kind of speeding up that process. I mean, it's one hundred percent what you're doing. You know, you're getting people that, you know from all walks of life to actually care about other people. You know that, right? I do know it. And it's so wonderful to hear it. Every time I hear it, people always say things like, oh, you know, I know you've heard this all the time. That never gets old. It never gets old to hear someone say to you, your story saved or changed my life. I don't own it. I don't say I saved lives. I'm a conduit. I give a message. I say words. I make short videos or movies or whatever. And people resonate with the message and they go home and save and change their own lives. There's an art and a science to storytelling. Stories are 22 times more memorable than facts or statistics. When you tell a story, the person who is listening on this podcast, the people listening, their brains link up with the story and they empathize. 100%. And when the empathy hormone is released, they feel relief from their pain. It is fascinating how the brain works in that way. And then what happens is they go home, they resonate with that message in their head. They go, I don't need to kill myself. I do deserve to be here. That's what he said. I do have value. I am worthy. I do matter. And suicide is not the answer. They did the work in their own heads to get there. Absolutely. If you need to get it from someone you've never met before, so be it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be your best friend that that saves your life. That story about your sister is remarkable. Yeah. Dude, your story's fucking crazy. <laughs> your life story, first of all, I wanted to ask you uh, another question too. Is there a statistic about adopted children and suicide? Yes. There's specifically statistics about foster children and suicide and the rates of foster children dying by suicide being much higher than those who do not. Consequently, the rates of foster children in the LGBTQIA community uh, die or attempt suicide far greater than those who aren't foster children and who are LGBTQIA. There are different statistics. I don't know all of them. Right, right. But there's a, a significant hike in suicidal ideation and attempts from foster kids to adopted kids. That stems from early infant or childhood trauma. And I certainly experienced infant trauma to, to a great degree. Um, my birth parents fed me and my brother what they could steal. Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk was my first diet. I was mentally ill from the very beginning, given my gut biome and my serotonin crashing my uh, brain chemistry just from the very get-go. 
And so my birth parents would leave me and my brother unattended to go do score or sell drugs. That was our life. We lived in and out of crack motels. That was our existence. And so humble beginnings uh, before I was put into foster care and, and my life was saved, plucked from obscurity by the Heinzes and given this beautiful life. And even though, even though I was given this beautiful life, just like my brother and my sister from two different families, even though that happened, the three of us would each see the inside of three psych wards before we were all 30 years of age because of our brains. Seeing your dad also in, in the documentary, when I went through what I went through, I'm going to try not to cry. I promise. I'm going to try not to cry. Okay, if you do, that's why we have tear ducts. It's okay if I do, brother. It I is. have tear ducts. They're there for a reason. Yes, yes, for sure. The part that resonated a lot with me from the documentary too is when um, you saw your dad, you, you talk about having IVs in your arms, you're all fucked up. And your father comes in and you tell him, you're sorry, you apologize to him, right? He looks at you and apologizes to you and he's, he loses it and starts crying. When I was going through what I was going through, my older brother had a kid at 16. My brother, Michael, was diagnosed with Tourette's. My sister, Kathy, acted out a lot, who was adopted. She had a very, very traumatic upbringing with her birth mother. So my parents were kind of like, oh, like Danny's good. Like he's like the one with like the least amount of uh, problems right now. So I always felt like my parents didn't give me enough attention when I was a kid. So I felt a little bit of disdain for them. I really did. I felt that, you know, my, my brother, Jared got cars. I never got a car when I turned 16. Uh, they got a lot of attention. Then his, the grandchildren got attention. Michael got attention. And when I went through that, my father was there with me every single day for about a month. He didn't leave my side. I never thought that I would ever be that close with my father. And after that month, I've never been closer with him. He did whatever he could to take care of me in that, in that time. My mom as well. He took me to all the doctors. Anytime I was saying, oh, no, I'm having a heart attack. I'm, 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 I'm losing my mind. I'm doing, you know, I need to do this. I need to go here. I'm, uh, he drove me everywhere. He made sure that I got my brain scan, my lungs, my stomach, everything. And uh, even he knew that, you know, these people are going to tell you that there's nothing wrong with you. This is psychological. And then what, after I came out of the psych ward, he helped me make sure that I went to all my therapists. He made sure I got all my medication, as did my mom. I got a lot closer with my parents. I'm closer with my parents now than I have ever been. And I can't imagine I was going to leave this earth without amending that relationship with them. I really feel that when you talk about your father in that situation, when we see our dads, we always want to make our dads proud, right? A lot of time we want to make our dads proud. That's what it is. You know, that's, that's my boy. You know, it comes back and plays in your mind. When you talk to your dad now, after the attempt, do you still feel like you have to apologize to your dad? Does that still come up in your head anymore that you feel like, hey, listen, like, I'm really sorry that this happened. Like, you feel like you have to apologize a little, uh, like a, a few more times. Cause I'm just speaking from my personal, I felt like I had to apologize like every month. I was, I was so embarrassed. And my dad told me, he said, Annie, you don't have to be embarrassed. It's okay. It's all right. Like, we're, we're going to get through it. I definitely felt that for a while, but not anymore. Good. And your, your story there is bringing me to tears here. Now, I'll tell you this. And you know this because you saw the movie. In the film, I asked my father if he still fears my death by suicide. And he asked me to turn off the camera. And he said, Kevin, 
every time the phone rings. He didn't say when the phone goes off in his pocket. He said when the phone goes off, anytime, his first and every thought is Kevin alive. My actions did that. And I am one to take responsibility for my actions today. So whenever my dad calls me and says, Kevin, are you thinking of killing yourself? I tell him the truth. As I live with chronic thoughts of suicide, but they'll never kill me. I'll never die that way. And I'm honest about my pain to people because I know that they are the ones that are going to help me get out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so with my dad, I don't feel like I have to say sorry anymore, but I definitely want him to know that I'm doing well. That's an amazing, amazing part of the documentary too. And it's, it's almost breathtaking. As men, we have this thing where we have to be these fucking tough guys all the time. Yeah. You know, and like, we're just these big, you know, macho dude. We don't want to let anybody down. We're supposed to take care of people and stuff. And, that, and that's just where it gets very difficult just even to express ourselves a lot of the time. So when you're on the bridge, you talk about this voice in your head and you say that it, it told you to just jump already. To jump now. Jump now. It was very, very loud. Was this voice your voice in your head or was it uh, a certain... Yeah. So if you've never heard auditory hallucinations, so imagine like you, you're, you're listening to your favorite playlist of music, Apple or Spotify, right? Are you listening to... Uh, your favorite podcast, yeah, off the cuff. And imagine if you're listening to your favorite audiobook, right? And you've got your earphones in and your headphones on, and you're going to that. And all of a sudden, it stops, and you hear a voice or voices in your head that you don't recognize as anyone you know or love telling you things you have to do that you don't want to. And that's what it's like. You hear this screaming in your head, like a, a hateful, spiteful angry voice. And here's the thing. Not everybody has these. Some people with auditory hallucinations hear nice, kind, encouraging voices. I wish I had those. Yeah. Where are those people at? I need to talk to them. You need those voices anytime. Yeah. Hey, I need that. But yeah. um, I had to resort to my inner critical thoughts to, to do that. Right, right. My inner conscience, if you will. It's different. The two are very different. So that's what I was dealing with when I left off the Golden Gate Bridge is that voice that was like, jump now at like the decimals that shook my eardrums, you know? Did the fall feel fast or feel long? Like that. Four seconds. Because you hear a lot of people say it's like, it felt like an eternity. Like if a car was about to hit them or... No, no. It, you're on the bridge and then you're in the water. Now, in that time, in that split second, did you have enough time to think after you were told, jump now? No. Just catapulted myself over the rail. But, but it was the millisecond that I did that, that I had instantaneous regret. And the absolute recognition, I just made the greatest mistake of my life, and it was too late. And you knew it immediately. I knew it immediately. Of the 26 remaining Golden Gate Bridge jump survivors, many have died of natural causes or old age. 19, the majority have come forward and said they all had the same instant regret that I did. And that was the other thing, too, is when you hit that water, what did that fucking feel like? Well, you know, I don't want to glorify this. I don't want to give people the idea. I will say this. There are tens of ways to die off the Golden Gate Bridge. They're all slow and violent. This is not something that is a child's play. This is not something you want to play around with. There's, there's been people that have left off the Golden Gate Bridge thinking that it was a big joke uh, in their heads. They didn't think they were attempting. And it's just so dangerous. I can't express that anymore, that it's very dangerous and that it's, it's uh, the worst action I ever took in my entire life. I do regret what I did that day. That said, hitting from that water at that height at that speed is like hitting a solid brick wall. You were going like 80 miles an hour almost. Right? 80 miles an hour, nearing the speed of terminal velocity. 
the impact reverberated through my legs into my lower back and it immediately shattered my T12, L1, L2 lower vertebrae. I missed severing my cord. I missed severing my spinal cord by two millimeters. And so I am very lucky to exist, period. I'm very blessed that I get to exist. A sea lion came to my aid in the water and kept me afloat until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me. So many things came into play to save my life that day. But had I not lived that day, had I died by suicide, I will say this, a lot of wonderful things would never have happened. And that's what you have to think of. You have to think of what you would have missed. For sure. I would have missed being there for the birth of my two godchildren, Zoe and Judah, who I love endlessly. I would have missed having my dog for 10 years, Max, who was a sharp pale, the wrinkles was just like that. I would have missed meeting and marrying the love of my life, Margaret Hines, and having my dad be the best man at my wedding, which there was no other choice. All my friends were upset. I would have missed all of those things and so much more. And I want to share something with you, Danny. I would have missed getting this message from someone who, who wrote to me recently. And he writes, I don't know if you remember me, but we met in a Starbucks in Buckhead one afternoon a little over two years ago. I was the homeless guy who gave up after losing his 11-year-old daughter to a car crash. I lost all hope. I lost my job, my home, everything. I was sitting in Starbucks with all my personal belongings in one bag. And you were sitting next to me. You looked at me and said, I like to talk to random people and just to get to know them, get to know their story. Can I ask you a question? If you could change anything in your life, what would it be? I told you my situation and what had happened to me, then you told me your story. We talked for almost an hour, and you bought me almost all the food in Starbucks I could possibly carry, gave me a bunch of wristbands and T-shirts to sell, to put some money in my pocket, and gave me your personal phone number. I thank you for just talking to me. I didn't know if I wanted to be on this earth anymore after what I went through. I want you to know that I got a job a week later, and after months of work and sleeping outside in the dirt behind a Waffle House, in Lindbergh Plaza, I rented my own apartment. I am now a manager at a car dealership, and I thank God for you and your chance encounter. Sincerely, The Stranger from Starbucks. Wow. You just got that? You just got that the other day. Wow. And I get these every day. I get these every day. They come in all the time. I've received hundreds of thousands of messages similar to this, and it means the world to me, Danny. It means the world to me. So the fact that you had an effect caused by the movie it is another phenomenal thing I will take home and never let go. And when I'm in New York, I'm coming to see you. 100%. And then I also just want to talk about how people have to understand that the survival rate is minuscule. 99% of the people who leap off the Golden Gate Bridge never again get to share their stories. They're gone forever. They're gone forever. Gone forever. So you take into all these factors, right? And you think that, okay, now I'll do this. This will take all this away, right? You hit this water at 80 miles an hour. Your vertebrae pretty much explodes. How bad do you want to live oh. as soon as you hit that water? I, all I want to do is live as soon as I let go of that rail. Yeah. As I was falling, I prayed that I would live. In the water, I prayed that I would live. Before the sea lion got to me, I prayed that I would live. I was going down. I couldn't stay with water. I was drowning. Sea lion brought me to the surface. No longer am I wading in the water. I'm lying atop it, being kept buoyant by this creature, praying to live. And who knows how much water you probably swallowed. So much. Sludge. Who knows? Yeah. And the fact that 
man, I really wish that you could track sea lions. <laughs> Have you ever tried to find that guy again? So this is, this is a story that is one of my favorites. I went back to the bridge a year to the date of my attempt with my father. And we get out of the car and I'm nauseous and I've got vertigo on the bridge. I, I'm dizzy. And I'm, I'm like stumbling as I'm stepping. My father kind of hoists me up and grabs me. And he goes, Kevin, show me where. And I knew the exact light rail. I showed him the exact light rail where I jumped. I'll never forget it. And there we were. And I had a purple tulip in my hand. And he grabbed my left hand and his right. And we said, an Our Father and a Hail Mary. And I dropped the flower. And it wafted down very slowly. It hit the water, made the tiniest of ripple effects, hence the name of the film. And two feet to the right, popped up a sea lion. And it was arguably the most beautiful moment I'd ever share with my father next to him being the best man at my wedding. Yeah. Uh, I just need a second. Take a minute. It's so wild to me. If you look from where you started, right? You're this kid, you're in foster care. At this point, before you know, you, you go into foster care, you don't know what a real meal is, right? You meet a family that takes you in, right? Yeah. That's your family. Leading up to these things, I knew that you were a wrestler. You were like uh, all section, all league when you were freshman wrestling. Uh, you were good at it, is what I'm trying to get at. But then, obviously, you have a, a drama teacher, uh, Dr. Fennell. What, what attracted you to drama? Well, first of all, John Fennell was just a, one hell of a character. You know, he was, yeah, yeah. He was a goober. But he was really just this great guy that if, if, you, if you listen to him talk about theater for five minutes, you want to be a part of it. Right. I always say he was a failed actor to high school thespian director, you know, <laughs> but he was the greatest teacher any of those kids would ever have. But you know, it's like when, how old are you now? I'm 40. You're 40. So I'm 33. Wrestling and acting didn't really go hand in hand. When we were kids. <laughs> if you know the atmosphere <laughs> that we grew up in. Okay? No, but they, they did because the acting season happened right before wrestling. Okay. I could either act or I could play football before wrestling. And I never had this inclination to play football, so I, I wrestled. During my junior year, I was too uh, mentally unwell to act, to do theater, and the football team gave me a chance. So I got to play football in junior year for JV. Yeah, you're just like, I'm just going to rip someone's head off every yeah, day. Yeah, and the team in the next year went to state, so I was on a good team. Yeah, yeah. I always say I was on the speech and debate team for two days before they kicked me off, but I was there at their loss. <laughs> yep, it is. It is. Uh, when I was in high school too, they, we had a group called Peer Leadership, right? Yeah. And I wasn't accepted. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then uh, I mentored a kid who uh, who passed away. He had a undiagnosed uh, heart condition. He jumped in a pool and never came out. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, but I kind of took that grade under my wing and helped a lot of those kids through that. And then my senior year, they gave me the Peer Mentor Award. Well. You made it. Like I told you. <laughs> I told you. But that's what it is. But but I think it's it there's people like us in the world. And I think as horrible as living with bipolar can be, right? Yeah. It kind of makes us dope individuals to a certain extent. Yeah. As hard as it can be. And I think the doctor in your documentary brings up a great point that you jumping from that bridge. It didn't change your diagnosis. No. You know, it's no. not like you hit the water and you just like weren't bipolar anymore. Yeah. Dr. Dr. John Draper, you bet. Yeah. 
yeah. and then it's like you know he's like this guy still has bipolar and I, at that part i kind of laughed when i saw yeah. that part <laughs> So and he was like, I just want you guys to know he still has bipolar pretty much. And I started fucking losing it because I have bipolar too. So what I'm hearing about it, I'm like, that's what my doctor said to me too. He was just like, dude, he's like, you know, like this medication and stuff. It's like, you know, you still have bipolar, right? And I was just like, oh yeah, that's right. So that part of the documentary, I fucking lost it. I just think you had to have like this kind of mentality. And I don't want to call it twisted, but in, it just for a lack of a better term, it's almost like a sense of uh, of humor. But that part of the documentary, I started cracking up. <laughs> it was kind of like a mockumentary when he was yeah. there, like doing. Was there it. anybody else in the theater laughing? No, 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 no. It was, it was just me laughing. <laughs> so, that's what, so I was just like, all right, they, this guy, we got to look at this guy the entire I'm time. I'm always that guy in the theater. I'm always doing that. Yeah. So it's like when I ever see stuff like that, like I just have to laugh. For you, do you have moments now? Like, obviously, we just shared a laugh together. Do you have moments now where you can kind of reflect back on what happened with you with a, just a little bit of levity? I know it's such a fucking serious thing. I think it's very important. Listen, when I travel the world and share my story, there is so much humor in it. Like the last 20 minutes is a laugh fest. Yeah. People appreciate that because you can't just leave people in pain. No, you can't just like walk in there and like tell a painful story and be like, see you. Good luck with your well-being. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I jumped off a bridge. I still have bipolar. I almost died. I'll see you later. Yeah. Thanks. You can't do that. No, you have to leave them with something to take home that is beneficial to their mental well-being. Yes. I'll be frank with you. That's why we started this YouTube channel. You know, it's a small channel. It's growing. But this channel is really important because. It's got 550 videos on how to balance your brain health that are entertaining and fun, educational, science-based, evidence-informed, proven ways to, to change your life. Take them, they're yours. And, and listen, it's a, I love uh, the mental health hack system yep. that you do on there. I think that's a great series. There's a couple that, that uh, uh, I'm definitely going to go back and use. Uh, I did a deep dive on you and I knew you were, you were coming. How often do you go back to the bridge? Do you mean think about it or physically? Physically, physically, uh, I go back there sometimes to film projects. Um, we're currently making the film The Net, which is a look at the 85 year battle to raise the net or rail at the Golden Gate Bridge, the eight fights that failed, the current fight that won, and the fact that the net is being put in place will be done by 2023. And thank God the Golden Gate Bridge will finally become the largest, brightest, and most powerful beacon for suicide prevention right around the world. Uh, it'll be this object for reduction of access to lethal means that will say to the rest of the world, wake up. We have to care about the people who cannot care for themselves. And so I go back there often and that kind of stuff. I have no qualms with going to see the Golden Gate Bridge. I have it in my background right here. You see. That's what I was going to say. It's an art deco masterpiece. It's a beautiful bridge. It's still a beautiful bridge to me. Some parents I know who lost their kids there can't look at it that way. I get that. I respect that. But I look at it as this masterpiece of, of art this piece of hope because we're putting up a net. We're stopping this harbinger of death from doing what it's done for 85 years, nearly a decade. Right. Yeah. Uh, pardon, nearly a, a century. century. Boy, yeah. I mean, that was great. Nearly a century. We're stopping it from becoming a harbinger of death for any longer, for any family in 2023, not one more family will live in that pain from that bridge. That's something to be said. That's amazing. And that's the thing. It's like, you'll never get a thank you for it, but that's the thank you you never want to get. 
No, and I don't need to thank you. I just need to do it. Nobody needs it. People who have fought for this cause for the better part of 30 years, we don't need the thanks. We need, we need suicides there to stop. That's what we need. How often do you wake up and you're like, I should probably be fucking dead? <laughs> I still have those nightmares. Oh, I can't fucking imagine, dude. Yeah, falling off a bridge endlessly. And so I wake up in a hot or cold sweat, and that's frustrating. But that's trauma. Yeah. Sometimes I think about what would my family's life be like had I died that day? And I remember something my dad said. One day he was feeling pretty low, and he just said, Kevin, if you died that day, I would have died that day. And I can imagine there were a lot more people that love me dearly that would feel the same way. Oh, yeah. People you don't even know about. People you don't even know about. I got letters in the, in the hospital from people I hadn't talked to in seven years. Yep. Who literally wrote to me and said, why didn't you call me? Well, we haven't talked in seven years. Why would I call you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, for sure. We never really know the impact we have on people. Yeah. We're lucky in a world now where technology is just like so fucking advanced. I constantly say on the show that just like the human body is like the most amazing invention ever. And especially like the human mind. But all inventions are flawed in some sense. Yeah. That's why we invented biohacking. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) And just on a personal note, that wife of yours is salt of the earth, brother. Yes, she is. She is the single greatest thing that has ever happened to me. And you know, when that documentary ends, it's like, you know, it's it's one of those things. She got to deal with you every day. (laughs) Yes, I know. You know what I'm saying? You know, that's, that's queen level stuff. My fiance has to deal with me too every day. Yeah. And it's something that, you know, I'm sure you do this, but I'd let her know. Thank you. Cause I know how fucking difficult it can be with me 24 seven. I just know how I'm with me 24 seven. I don't even want to hang out with me. (laughs) I can completely relate. She is the absolute salt of the earth. Yeah. And then when you put all of it together, damn, it's when you put all of it together at the end and you see all these people that in your life, right? You wouldn't have had any of these things, man. Yeah. And this is something that I was thinking about too, just being like, look at these things, these beautiful things. And I still struggle every day. And I'm sure you do too. Yeah. So much beauty came out of that horrible decision, right? Yeah. So much beauty came out of it. I want you to know that even before this happened, you still deserved all those things. I hope you know that. Yeah. But you know, th- what, what you went through gave you a different appreciation for life. Different perspective. A different perspective and appreciation. And when I see somebody, I always made fun of myself. I was like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have the balls to do it. I didn't have the balls to jump. I went impatient. You know what I mean? To see somebody survive something that realistically no one survives. And for you to come out the way that you came out is honestly, it's one of the best American history stories that I've ever heard. And I'm a history buff. That's the only class that I passed in high school and college. (laughs) It's the truth. I love history. I get it from my dad. My dad loves history, old movies. You have to just understand that going forward, the transparency is key for you. Yeah. But I also want you to know that, like you said, you had a tough day yesterday. The transparency with that is just that I want you to know that it's okay for you to have those bad days and to take a little bit of time off and reflect and get yourself back 
to wherever it is you need to be. I just as somebody who's had suicidal thoughts for a good part of their life, I still have them from time to time. It's just something that I, that I deal with. You know, like I'll have small ones. I'm like, I wonder if I jump in front of this fucking bus, if it'll take me out. So I'll have moments and shit like that. But for me, it's, I think about people like you. I think about other people who had the road to recovery for you. It's never going to stop, but that's such a beautiful thing. So I hope you never really lose sight of that. And I don't think you will, but I want you to know that, you know, like you said, people like from seven years that you didn't know about, it's like you affected my life and you didn't even know who I was. So I just want to thank you for the work that you've done. I want to thank you for the work that you're going to continue to do for the lives that you're going to save. I know as men, especially ones that struggle with mental health, we could beat ourselves up sometimes. I just hope when you beat yourself up, you take it easy on yourself a little bit. You know what I mean? Dude, you're an amazing fucking individual. You know what I mean? And the world is better and the world has prospered with you staying in it. And I'd like to feel the same way about myself. Facts. Think about it. If we both would have did that, if you were to, to have died, and if I were to have jumped, we would... This would never happen. And look at that. Yeah. I want to know who writes you and tells you about this podcast. You know, I will, for sure. What are they saying? You know, I want to... 100%. Understand. 100%. And I, and I want you also to know is like your actual father, but your father in the church. Oh, yeah. It was uh, Brother George Cherry. Yeah. Brother George. For you... Were you uh, spiritual? Were you religious before that? Yeah, I'm, I'm a Catholic, raised Catholic, still Catholic, practicing Catholic. Yeah, because I know when you came out of the water, you said, I just fucking prayed to God that he would get me out of here. Minus the F word. My dad says, you know, because I, I lost my faith for a minute on top of the bridge, but he says I found him on the way down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When I was, when I was inpatient and uh, my, my roommate was a paranoid schizophrenic, uh, who was screaming the entire night that I stole his clothes and I stole all of his money. And I, I stole his house. Uh, let me tell you something. Me and God were very good friends when I came out of there. Yeah. You're very close. Is that still something that helps you to this day? Yes. My faith, my friends and my family are my three F's. I think especially too with mental health, I think faith kind of gets a negative connotation. Yeah. Yeah. It depends on the time. Because I don't push my faith on anybody. No. That's for me to have. That's my core. That's my center. And I'm not asking anybody out there who's listening to this story to have faith in God like I do. I'm asking you to have faith in yourself, faith in human condition, faith in your ability to fight to be well and to survive any pain that comes your way. You can do one of two things with pain. You can let it defeat you or you can let it build you brick by brick from the ground up until you're stronger than ever. That's a choice. Another thing, too, is. You have some things on your YouTube channel that I think that are very important also to hear. Obviously, we talked about your story. Thank God you're still here. It's almost scientifically impossible. I hope you fucking know that. Yeah, I know. It's like you're a superhero. <laughs> it really is. It's something that it was horrible that, that, your, that your brain and your mind pushed you to that, right? But you talk about brain pain, right? You talk about brain pain a lot, that your brain pain pushed you to that and that you were able to survive that. Dude, that's just a gangster human being, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? And to come out of that water and be like, you know what? As soon as like my back heals and I figure shit out and I get the help I got to get, I'm going to give this to other people. You could have been selfish with it. You could have been like, you know, you could have been a certain way about it. 
you could have just tried to go on and live like a quote unquote normal life as everybody talks about. Yeah. You know what I mean? But you decided to, to help other people, man. That's a beautiful thing. Thank you. That's a beautiful thing. There are a couple of things that I wanted to talk to you about too. I'm going to have you back on the show for sure. And then we'll get into a whole bunch of other shit. And then if you ever need me for anything, I'm here. There's things that you also talk about that are just everyday stuff that are just super important. Can you talk about the importance of 30 minutes of exercise a day when it comes to mental health? Yeah. So first of all, let's be clear. If you are lucky enough to be physically capable, as we are well aware that many people, many are not, if you happen to be physically capable, 23 minutes of rigorous exercise leads to 12 hours of better mood. So if you do that twice a day, that's 24 hours of better mood. Yeah, it's a good ass day. That's a good day. It's a damn good day. Who doesn't want that? Yeah. Uh, and that carries over to the next day. And then you do it again, and it carries over again, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and so on and so forth, as they say. How important is diet? Diet is so important in your mental health. There are two types of foods. And I talk about this in my YouTube channel, inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory foods. Yes. Inflammatory foods are processed. They come from boxes and packaging and plastic wrappings, and they're not healthy. Anti-inflammatory foods come from the ground, whole foods, and they come from lean animals. You know, whole foods are what feed the brain the nutrition that it needs to be mentally stable. If you are living in a food desert or a community that doesn't allow you to eat those proper foods, it damages your brain. That's why in impoverished areas, there's so much more violence. And they've traced violence back to food that individuals eat. We're not blaming the food that they eat. We're saying that by eating only processed foods, it's absolutely having an effect on the aggressive portion of your brain, which is a causative factor in much violence. That's a simple fact, scientific fact. So being aware of that, and being able to combat that is very key. And the other thing I wanted to ask too is, how often do you go to therapy? Are you in therapy now? You know, I am not currently in therapy. I go to my therapist when I feel I need to talk. Got it. I have a therapist. I see her probably once every couple of months. Okay, that's good. Because I, I've come to a place where I'm in a main state of calm. Good. I'm not manic. I'm not depressed. I get depressed. I get manic, but I bring myself back to a focus. If and when it gets really bad, I will call her and tell her I need to say. That's good to hear. And then, um, you know, uh, listen, I know you're a very busy guy. The last thing I wanted to talk about is, can we talk about the docuseries, uh, The Journey? Sure. How did that come to be? That's not out yet. We've shot just a little bit of it. We shot about two episodes of that. You know, in traveling around the world, meeting people in person who had said that the story saved their life, it just became apparent that there were so many people in so many countries that had heard the message and it had altered them forever. So we wanted to capture that. So one of the first things we did was fly to Australia and do a film tour out there with Sue said the ripple effect. And we met with one of these kids who wrote into me through a Facebook message and said, I was on the, this particular bridge in, in Australia, ready to leap off. And my ex-girlfriend, which was part of his reasoning for leaping off the bridge, his relationship breakup, my ex-girlfriend sent me this video you did, and it was the trailer to Suicide the Ripple Effect, the extended original trailer. 
since been some different one. And he said he stood there on the bridge at the rail, ready to jump, watching the trailer. And at the end of the trailer, he said, I got to call my mom. I can't do this. Yeah. And he called his mom and dad and said, I'm in a really bad place. I need you to come pick me up. Wow. He sits with us in this episode and tells us this story. And we literally read the message that he literally reads the message to me that he said, the cameramen were crying. Everything was, everybody was a mess. It was an amazing moment to be shared. And in that trip to Australia, we met several other people who had had a ripple effect like that with my story. And it was just beautiful. So imagine traveling the world, Peru, Africa, China, Japan, hearing these stories. I'm actually very interested to see uh, whatever episode that you do shoot in, in Japan, because I know that their suicide rate is very high. Is it still as high as it used to be? I don't know. Uh, the last time I heard about their suicides in Japan was when the COVID pandemic had just hit. And it was my understanding that Japan had more suicides in the month of October than the entire year prior. Unreal. Unreal. Just keep making content, man. I will, my friend. Just keep making content. Like I'm, I'm being so goddamn serious. Part of me. I'm being so serious. Yeah. Your content is content that as someone on my mission to is what I look up to. Uh, it really is. I look up to you as a, a as an individual. I look up to you as a person. I look to you like almost like you, you just know, like as much as you say, like that bridge is going to be a, a beacon of hope for people thinking about taking their lives and people who have take, uh, taken their lives. You are too. And I think that um, your work will never be done. It's tough, but I know that you're ready for that. Just from talking to you and, and watching your journey and seeing what you went through, I do believe in God. I am a believer in God. I do believe in angels. I really do think that you are lucky enough to be one that gets to walk around here. <laughs> I just want you to know. So, you know, if there's anything that we could ever do for you here at uh, at One One Life and off the cuff, please let us know. It's not a problem. I just want you to keep doing what you're doing, man. Even when you have those bad days, I want you to kind of think back to like this interview and just remember that I, I said it a whole bunch of times. Keep doing what you're doing, man. You're doing uh, just beautiful work with what you do and uh i'm so proud of uh, my producer sam for getting this interview done i'm so thankful to you for uh taking the time out but i have a couple questions that i always ask at the end of the show and one of them it's easy to say but it's not you know sometimes easy to answer but what it is is are you happy today oh i'm so happy good so happy i'm a big fan of self-reflection i think it's it's nice to like you said family should be asking questions I think every once in a while we have to ask questions and, and see if the person that we are dealing with directly is happy today. And now I hope that you could ask one other person that today. So then we'll start our own ripple effect today. Yes, that sounds like a plan. We'll do that. And then where can everybody find you on social media, find your film? I know it's on, uh, on Vimeo. When's the journey coming? When are you going on tour, live dates, anything you want to promo? please let us know because uh, obviously I'm a fan and I think a lot of people will be able to benefit from what uh, the content that you're putting out there. All right. Well, I, I really appreciate you giving me this platform to do that. It means for a sure. lot. Thank you for sharing this whole conversation with me. It's been wonderful. I really appreciate all your kind words. You've, you've been phenomenal, Danny. And I hope we do stay in touch after this for sure. For sure. People can reach me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Kevin Hines Story. And TikTok at Kevin Hines Story. And that's K E V I N H I N E S S T O R Y. Uh, they can find my podcast at the Hindsights Podcast, 
H-I-N-E-S-I-G-H-T-S podcast, where all podcasts are found. And then go to my website, kevinhinesstory.com, where if they go to the resources section, they can find multiple resources to better your brain, mind, behavior, health, scientifically proven things to challenge and better your brain health, better fun, entertaining, and engaging. Obviously, you can go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, as you see above. And that is uh, where you'll find the 550 videos uh, that can help change your life. People write into them from all over the world to say they did that. I want them to do that for you. They're free. Take them. They're yours. And uh, I highly recommend them. Like I said, especially the mental health hacks. I think it's a great series. Again, Kevin, thank you so much for your time. Your story is miraculous. It's unbelievable, but I'm so happy it's real. It's authentic. It's strong. It's sad. It's happy. It's everything uh, in a story. And then, uh, well, you know, one day, as much as you're making a movie about yourself, I hope somebody makes a movie about you. You deserve one of those uh, for sure. And uh, I just want you to know, you know, Kevin has won so many awards. Uh, it, it, I can't, I can't even, but you did win the Clifford uh, W. Beers Award, which is like the highest honor in the mental health America field. So that I wanted to congratulate you on. Just keep doing what you're doing, man. I had such a great fucking time talking to you, dude. Thank you, Danny. This meant a lot to me today. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Like I said, if you ever need anything from us over here, we're family. So anything you need. And uh, it, I'm so happy that you're still here, man. Thank you, Danny. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!